on the show today. Hello and welcome everybody. On the show today, we're going to be addressing some of your questions like if someone is in extreme suffering, should we be able to pull them off life support? Other questions came in on the topic of abortion, like should we allow for abortion in the case of someone being raised with some sort of disease? Or what about if abortion sends kids to heaven, then shouldn't we abort more kids, right? If babies go to heaven, Shouldn't that be used as a reason to justify abortion? And then finally, a little conversation on the age of the earth. Does starlight prove that the universe is old? Those are some questions that came in from people uh, through social media ahead of time for today's Q&A. And also you have the chance at asking your questions as well. So I would encourage you guys, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you wanna talk about anything, there are two things that you can do now. Now, before we go live, by the way, this is a every week show. My name is Ryan Polly. I'm a high school teacher. Every week show where we discuss aspects related to the Christian worldview to help you think deeply about what Christians believe, how to defend it, and then faithfully live it out. And every last Friday of the month at 2 p.m. Pacific time, there will be this kind of live Q&A call-in opportunity. So if you want to send in questions ahead of time for this Q&A and then Obviously, you'd be sending it in ahead of time for the one next month at the end of February. Uh, you can do so on social media. The connections and things are here. If you want to connect on social media, at Twitter or Instagram or on the Facebook page, it's in the description below. You can send in those questions for next month's Q&A. But now that we are live, you have two options. You can either uh, send in your question in the live chat. You can put a Q before your question and then send in your question and I will address that question there in the live chat. Or if you actually wanna call in and talk on the show, you can text the number. It is down below in the description and I always forget it. It should be 714-989-6927, I believe. And you can text that number and I have someone there waiting that you can text your name and question, then they will respond and give you the link to where you can join. You can join on a phone, on a laptop, on a computer, whatever it is, you can join the conversation and chat with me uh, about whatever it is that you wanna talk about. So those are some options. And uh, so thank you guys for being here. Thank you so much for watching. And hopefully uh, these questions that came in ahead of time as well as the ones that you're about to ask, because I know you're gonna ask some, are uh, helpful to you to think critically about life and what it is that, um, and how Christians need to faithfully live out the Christian worldview. So we're gonna be jumping in right away to our first question. Is it ever right, this came in from a student on Instagram, is it ever right to pull someone off life support if they can't be helped, like if they are in extreme suffering or there's nothing they can do to reduce the pain? Well, this needs some breaking down and some definitions and some clarification. To, to give a blanket statement answer just simply based on that question uh, will lead to, I think, some confusion because I do believe there is an appropriate time to take someone off life support. However, I do believe there is a time where we can take someone off life support, but I don't think actually for the reasons given here. So we have to understand, right, this idea of, of euthanasia. And this is something I covered in my high school ethics class when we talk about the value of human life. Two main kind of kinds of euthanasia are active euthanasia, where you are actively participating or administering something to end the life of a patient. And this would be like, for example, physician-assisted suicide. So either the doctor can give you something to end your life because of being in extreme pain and suffering, or the doctor prescribes some medication that then you take on your own, and this is physician-assisted suicide. Uh, there's also passive euthanasia where you are withholding 
treatment that could have saved someone's life, that could have helped them, but instead um, you have the intent of ending their life and so you withhold this life-giving treatment. Um, I think that both forms of euthanasia are wrong. And I want to offer just a couple questions to that I think kind of help clarify what can be this very difficult issue. The first thing is this, what is killing the person? I think this is a super important question because we see in scripture, not only in the 10 commandments, but we see in Genesis chapter nine, this idea that God clearly states is that murder is wrong. And I believe it's also something that doesn't matter if you uh, are not a Christian, we inherently know murder is wrong. This idea of taking an innocent human life without justification is wrong. And so if that is true, which I firmly believe it is, and I know it to be true, that murder is wrong, then taking an innocent human life is wrong. Even if they're suffering, I do not think that suffering is a justification to take the innocent human life. And so the question I think that comes up with this issue is that if it is wrong to take innocent human life and euthanasia takes innocent human life, then euthanasia would be wrong. And so the question is, what is killing them? If it is me or the doctor that is killing the person, that would be wrong. On the flip side, it is the disease. It's possible that it is the sickness, the disease that is killing the individual. And that's when I would think that it is okay. And that's why I say I do believe there are times when euthanasia is appropriate or is not, sorry, not euthanasia is appropriate, where pulling the plug is appropriate. It is when you are not the one killing the person, but you're allowing the disease to take their life. Now, here's the evaluation that we have to look at. What we're not doing is asking does the person have value? We're not asking if their life has value. Are they going to live some valuable life or not? Uh, do they have any value left? Are they too sick where they've lost their value? That's not the question. Human beings in the Christian view have intrinsic human value. We are built in the image of God to be valuable. The question we're asking here is, does the treatment have any value? Right? That's the question. And so in my understanding, in my belief, and how I apply this to the ethical issues of end-of-life questions is if the treatment itself does not have value, meaning the treatment will not heal the person, there is, there's no chance at bringing them back. The treatment is kind of pointless in a sense. There's, it's not doing anything. Then we do have the ability to stop that treatment we're not saying anything about the value of the person. We're not saying anything about the value of their life. We're saying this treatment doesn't have value. And so we can stop the treatment. All right. And so that's what I think. And so if someone is dying of cancer and you are trying to treat that and the machine is the only thing that is keeping them alive and you realize, and through our best abilities, we determine that this treatment is valueless. It is not helping they are dying, then I believe that you can stop the treatment and you're allowing that person to die from the disease or from the sickness or from the cancer or from whatever it is that they have. That's not you killing them. You're just re removing that life support that's keeping them alive, but doing so without creating that positive benefit of helping. Now, again, where this is important to draw that distinction, like I did at the beginning between active euthanasia and passive euthanasia, active euthanasia clearly has the intention of killing the person, right? You're administering something that is taking their life. Passive euthanasia is withholding treatment 
with the purpose of ending their life. And so this, in my view, is we could, this treatment has value. We could do something to save you, but we're choosing not to because we have the goal of ending that life. And I would think that is wrong because there is a valuable thing you could have done. You chose not to. That's murder. That's taking an innocent human life and you not have a good reason for it. Versus, again, the value of the treatment itself is not there. And so you can remove that treatment. Now, where the question goes with this is, um, what about in the case of extreme suffering? Well, here's where I think we have this really weird, slippery slope, this very gray area. What is extreme suffering? And if this thing justifies or counts as extreme suffering, well, then what about one step less? What about a little bit less pain? What about a little bit less? And this is very difficult line to draw of what exactly is extreme suffering? Someone can say, well, I'm in extreme suffering. And that's nowhere near what someone else's extreme suffering is. And so if we want to say, yes, blanket statement, you can pull the plug. If someone is in extreme suffering, that's a very difficult thing to actually define and, and create that standard in order to judge what counts and what doesn't. What if there's nothing left to do to reduce pain? I don't believe in this idea of mercy killing for humans, that because they are in pain, then we should kill them. That is not a justification. There are medicines. There are things that we can do. We can put people in induced comas to reduce pain. Again, if, if we say, look, we can put you in a coma, we can give you some sort of medicine, reduce the pain that gives us time to use a valuable solution, to, to a valuable treatment to heal you, to bring you back, to help you recover. Awesome. But if we're simply realizing there's no value in any treatment, then we can give certain medications, reduce the pain, and allow that person to die of their disease, of their sickness. And so we don't have to keep them alive without that kind of point, without that purpose, without that hope of them coming back. Um, and so what this also can do, and the last thing is, why or how do we justify and how do we define suffering? Is it only physical pain? And that's where you see in countries that have started to legalize different aspects of euthanasia is it goes from being in physical pain to no hope of living and, and this kind of stuff. If this is a terminal cancer, this is a terminal disease to now like emotional and mental pain and difficulties where now people are depressed enough that we see, oh, you are in extreme suffering and it's starting to justify them taking their lives. And so I see this again, this issue of if we start to say, yes, being in pain is a good reason to end someone's life. Well, what kind of pain? Does it have to be physical? Why not emotional or spiritual? Whatever. Recognizing, no, that's not a good reason. We should never be the agents of causing someone death, an innocent person without justification. And so, uh, yes, you can pull the plug. The treatment does not have value and allow that person to die from their sickness. But you should not be the agent of their death because that's not a justified reason. So hopefully that helps in kind of looking at some of these end of life issues. Now, kind of on a side topic with that, uh, I believe that uh, these are very difficult conversations. And that's why when I took my ethics class in graduate school, where we discussed uh, these end of life issues, our professor encouraged us. By the way, Scott Ray, a very popular, famous, uh, well-known ethicist, was my professor. Uh, he encouraged us to talk to our parents and grandparents and even for us when we get older to create those living wills. And so that you are deciding based on your ethical worldview perspective, what is going to happen to you when you get into that situation. 
Because if you don't choose, then you're leaving it up to your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, some family member to make that choice for you. And I think that does one of two things. One, someone can make a choice that you believe is wrong because you've not directed them on how you want that choice to be made. Or two, you're putting in a very difficult decision on someone else. And this has been known to create issues within families where a husband is sick and dying and the wife makes the choice to pull the plug. And then now the husband's family now hates the daughter-in-law. And now it creates this tension and this issue because she just killed our son. And this creates some very difficult situations when you're putting that pressure on someone else. And so the encouragement given to me, and I think it's a good advice, is to the best of your abilities to create that, the, your will, create a living will, create these directives for yourself based on your ethical beliefs of what you believe is right and wrong in different situations. So that if this ever does happen to you, that burden does not fall on someone else that has the ability to create these difficult situations, but you have are now directing people when you don't have the ability to, because you're in a coma or something, you're now directing people to make the decisions uh, that are right according to what you have determined is right and good. So hopefully, uh, kind of a little side point, but I think it's good advice that was given to me. I wanted to give to you guys as well. So. Uh, there was question number one, a couple more that came in ahead of time. And again, uh, if you have questions, call in. It can be anything I'm saying here or random questions or other videos you want some clarification on, or again, send them in in the live chat here. But question number two that came in, it says, uh, what is the defense for people when they say that we shouldn't raise a kid if he or she will be born with a disease and instead should have an abortion. So this is uh, someone uh, came from uh, someone who is pro-life and is saying, Hey, I I'm confronted with this objection that children with diseases, it's better if they're divorced, uh, aborted rather than raise kids with uh, some sort of disease or some sort of physical deformity. Uh, what do you say in defense? Well, I think a, a, a helpful tactic when thinking about abortion issues, and this will come up in the next question because there's another kind of abortion related question coming up, is what is the unborn? What is the unborn? And I think there are good scientific reasons from the science of embryology. We can say that the unborn from the moment of conception is a living, distinct, and whole human being. And one way to tell, and I think a very helpful tactic, and I almost always use this, is to tell if the person you're talking to is viewing the unborn not as a human being, but somehow lesser, not as a person, is to use the tactic called trot out the toddler. And simply what this is, is to say, does this justification that you are using for killing the unborn for abortion, does that apply to a toddler, to an act, to another innocent human being, right? Most of us would see one-year-olds, two-year-olds as being innocent human beings, not committing anything deserving of death, right? We're not talking about some evil dictator. We're not talking about a murderer who's on death row. We're not talking about the death penalty at this point. We're talking about toddlers, innocent human beings that we all probably recognize. And we ask the same question. Is it justified to kill a two-year-old boy instead of raising him with a disease? So let's say you have a one-year-old son, a one-year-old daughter. Little Johnny is standing here. Hey, Johnny, come here. Johnny's standing here right next to you. And Johnny has just gotten into a car accident or something has happened to Johnny. Well, now Johnny has a disease, a sickness, a deformity. And we say, can I kill little Johnny because little Johnny's sick? And this is what we just talked about with euthanasia. Right? Well, no, Johnny will live. Johnny's not in the hospital, but 
you know, it, it'll be a struggle. Johnny will have to have some surgeries. He'll, he'll have to take medication his whole life. But, you know, that's, that's a rough life. You know, we don't want to have to raise little Johnny with a disease. And so that should be a good reason to kill little Johnny, right? Most people will say, no, you can't kill a one-year-old kid just because he's sick. You have to care for the kid, especially if there are valuable treatments available to allow little Johnny to have as much life as he possibly can. Okay, here's the point. If you can't kill a toddler for having a disease, why can you have an abortion? Right? It's the same thing. We have a, a, a living, distinct, whole human being, innocent human being who has not been born, and we have an innocent human being who has been born. If you can kill this innocent human being for being sick, why can't you kill this one for being sick? Right? And often it's you can't have to protect little Johnny but you can't have an abortion. Okay, so we're not seeing the unborn in the same way that we see little Johnny. What's different about the unborn than little Johnny? And this is the, the popular sled test, right? The, the, the four main areas that are often used to justify abortion or killing the unborn that they would not apply to born falls in the areas of S, size. The unborn is much smaller. L, level of development. The unborn is less developed than a, a toddler. Therefore, you can kill it. Uh, e, environment, where the unborn is, inside the mother rather than outside. And D, degree of dependency. But we recognize that your size does not determine your value. The adult is no more valuable than a child to where the adult can live and the child can die. Your size does not determine your value. Your level of development does not determine your value. A one-week-old baby is less developed than an adult. But the one-week-old baby is not any less deserving of life. The one-week-old baby is a valuable living human being deserving of life. And so your level of development does not change value. Your environment does not change your value. Where you are does not determine how valuable you are or what you are. Being inside a woman versus outside does not change value. And degree of dependence. There's a lot of people who depend on medicine, who depend on people. I mean, even little kids depend on their parents. High school kids depend on their parents, for goodness sake. But we would not say because they are more dependent than a independent adult, that somehow they are less valuable. And so what I would do to respond to someone saying abortion should be allowed in the case of sickness because we shouldn't raise a kid if he or she will be born with a sickness, I would just say, why not? Why is sickness for you a reason for abortion? Why is that a justified reason? Now, I think then you could take a secondary approach and say, well, maybe the doctors are wrong. There's a lot of times where genetic tests are done that actually turn out to be false, where they say your child is going to be born with whatever, the parents continue on with the birth, give birth, and it's a perfectly healthy baby. So you can talk about how, hey, science is not always accurate on this. Sometimes we make mistakes and there's a wrong prediction or wrong test that is done. But even if the test is accurate, even if that child will be born, it's still wrong. Now, how we're seeing this happen is I show this to my students in Iceland. You can find articles in Google. It became popular a few years ago where a bunch of articles came out saying in Iceland how they had eradicated Down syndrome, that there are no more Down syndrome kids. Why? Because they aborted. There's almost a 100% abortion rate for children with Down syndrome in Iceland. I believe if I remember off the top of my head, like the United States, it's like 68% or 70% that we abort a large percentage of Down syndrome kids. And what's crazy is there's this group, I believe it was in like France, that created a commercial 
of Down syndrome kids showing how they can do the things that kids do. We can be happy and we can draw and we can love and we can take care of things and our parents take care of us and we have fun. And it was this huge promotion of we're valuable people too who can live a happy life even with Down syndrome. And there was a country, I think it was France, that banned the commercial. Why? To me, and I don't know why they did, but it goes against this narrative. Hey, you're sick, you're valueless, you're worthless. I also give my students the illustration of the movie, Me Before You. The movie Me Before You came out a while ago, the story of a guy who gets into a car accident and who, um, who, uh, who's in a wheelchair and is really missing the life that he had. And then the girl comes into his life really is just a caretaker, if you've seen the movie. Uh, she starts taking care of him. And what she finds out is that he has given his parents this dilemma. Sorry if I'm kind of ruining the story. It's been out for a long time. But it still is an interesting watch. Uh, he has given his parents a dilemma that if he doesn't change his mind in six months that he's going to go through with euthanasia. He's going to take his life or he's going to get physician assisted suicide because his life is not worth living. And so this girl starts to fall in love with him and tries to convince him that life is worth living and takes him on adventures and does all of this stuff with him, trying to show him how amazing life can be. And there's a part in the movie. And in fact, it's even in the trailer. I wasn't planning to talk about this or else maybe I would have pulled it up. But there's a part in the trailer that says I where he says to her. I don't want to keep you from living the life and experiencing the things that you could experience. Now, this enraged the entire disabled community, right? Of, of presenting this idea that if you are disabled, you are a burden on your family. You are keeping them from truly experiencing life and that their lives would be better without you. And he says, I don't want to keep you from experiencing these things rather than saying, look, we're valuable. Yes, life looks different, but we can still live a beautiful, wonderful, amazing life, even with someone with a disease or a deformity or some sort of physical issue. But we have this idea in our culture that those people are less valuable. They are a burden on society or something like that. And so we would be better off without them. And so we go through things like euthanasia or we advocate abortion for this reason. And it's sad. Because then as we see, and I wasn't even again planning this either, but as we see between these two questions, they're linked. Oh, you have a disease in the womb? Well, we don't want to raise you with a disease so we can justify killing you before you're born because you have a disease. Oh, you have a disease later on in life? Oh, now we can justify killing you because you're in extreme suffering. Where does it stop? And it's this weird slippery slope where we, we want to say, oh, it's just abortion. Oh, now it's just extreme suffering. Oh, it's only physical pain. Oh, now it's emotional pain. You'd be better off without me. No, these are valuable human beings that we're talking about. So that's how I would defend against someone saying that we should raise, we shouldn't have to raise kids uh, here. A question in the live chat. Thanks for sending this in. Uh, true counterphobia. Let's put this up here on the screen so everyone else can see it. Someone brought up that some people are born to die of hunger as a child. He might just be resistant to what I was saying about my faith or not. What should I say to him when I see him next? My question is, how does he know that? What does he mean? Some people are brought up. Some people brought up that some people are born to die of hunger. How does he know what they were born for? 
Um, it's God who is the author of life, who gives life and takes life away. Has God revealed that, hey, I created this person just so they could be born of hunger? Um, is this maybe an excuse of I don't need to go help world hunger and I don't need to try to help the needy because they were created to be born and be hungry and die of hunger. And so why help them? Because that's what they were created for. Um, that's not a Christian view. It doesn't take long of looking in the Gospels to see Jesus coming and caring for the needy and the outcast, for the church coming along to support those who were in need. In the Old Testament, to care about those who are in need. It's clear throughout all of Scripture, this line of God created human beings valuable in his image and therefore deserving of life and dignity. And so for us to say, no, they're created to die of hunger. No, they weren't. That's definitely not what's revealed in scripture. God created us to be in relationship with him. And yes, there are broken aspects of our world. Yes, there are uh, bad things that happen. Yes, there are, there are evils that take place, but we don't believe God created them for that reason. That's a brokenness. That's a fallenness of our creation. And us as Christians, we are called to be stewards of creation. We are called to be God's ambassadors. We are called to be agents of change, to go out and make disciples and not just simply win converts, but to care for the needy and the hungry and the poor and the broken. That's a fundamental aspect of the Christian message. So um, I don't know if this person that you're referring to is a Christian or not, but if he is, and he's, you know, maybe he is, you're saying he, he might just be resistant about your faith. Uh, maybe that's true. Um, but even from like, even from like an evolutionary perspective, if he is not a Christian and he holds to evolution, there's still not a purpose of that person saying that person was born to die of hunger. It would be bad luck. Um, yeah, you got some sort of bad situation, kind of there's bad genes or bad environment. You're born in the wrong family. That sucks. The fit survive. I mean, there, there's many ways in which someone could talk about this. But I think what I'm just trying to think through is that even from an evolutionary perspective, there's still not a, a purpose for that birth to die of hunger. And so I don't know from either kind of a secular perspective or even a Christian perspective. I don't know how someone could come along and claim with knowledge, I know that this person was born to die of hunger rather than seeing it as a broken aspect um, of our world. So uh, hopefully that helps on what you should say to him. I, I would ask questions. How do you, how do you come to that conclusion? How do you know that? Um, you know, and I, I don't know, I'd love to have you follow up and, and let me know kind of how that conversation goes, if that comes back up. Um, thank you so much. All right. Again, if you are just now joining, uh, this is our end of the month Q&A, 2 p.m. every last Friday of the month. I have some questions that came in ahead of time on social media, as well as you can send in your questions in chat. Or if you have the courage, you can call in. I have someone that will send you a link if you just text the number below, 714-989-6927. You text your question and name to them, you'll get a link and you can join uh, in the audio and you can have a little chat. Um, I might have just messed up that phone number. That's why I wrote it below in the description in case I accidentally say it wrongly. All right, let's move along. Question number three from before. Question number four for today. Um, does starlight, actually, 
let's skip that one and let's stick on this topic of abortion here really quickly. A question came in, uh, texted to me and said, um, if all babies are aborted, go to heaven, right? So this is uh, some Christians, uh, myself included, I believe that <clears throat> I believe that children go to heaven. I believe that God saves children uh, before, <clears throat> excuse me, let me get some water. I've been teaching all day and haven't had much of a break. Um, I, man, something's wrong with my voice. It is really scratchy. Um, you know, some people refer to it as the age of accountability. Um, I think it's kind of the mental awareness of accountability, but, uh, I believe that children before a certain, uh, awareness are able to, or that God saves them. I believe that all children are saved. And so the question came in that says, okay, if all babies, um, are saved and aborted babies go to heaven, then if you really love your baby, you should want to do anything to guarantee that they spend eternity in heaven. Therefore, you should abort your baby. Um, how would I respond? Well, I came up with seven, seven different points of consideration for this claim that if children go to heaven, then you should be aborting your children to guarantee their salvation. Now, what I'm not going to necessarily explain is why I think the children go to heaven. If you want to know why, you, I guess you can ask that question in the live chat. But this is assuming they do. Number one, I could be wrong. The Bible never clearly says, excuse me, all children go to heaven. It doesn't. It is a belief that I hold based on different scriptures. And so um, I could be wrong. And so I'm not going to come out and say, guaranteed, your child will be in heaven. Therefore, if you abort your child, they will be in heaven and give that some sort of certainty that I don't know for sure. And so I could be wrong. And so I'm not going to say, yes, start aborting babies because I could be wrong. Uh, you know, they're guaranteed heaven. I do believe they go to heaven, but I could be wrong about it. Now, even if I'm not wrong, good. First caller is here and, oh, just kidding, went away. If you just try calling, you can call back. Um, number two is um, even if I'm not wrong, even if God does save all babies, does that mean that we should start killing our babies to guarantee that they go to heaven? No. And here's some reasons. Number one, murder is wrong, period. Christianity does not have a pragmatic ethic. It doesn't. Um, we don't hold a pragmatism where the ends justify the means. You can't say that because, uh, that, um, because it sends the kid to heaven, therefore what you're doing is good. Murder is wrong, period. And that's the first reason why you should not, even if abortion does guarantee the child spends eternity in heaven, you should not start aborting your babies because murder and what you are doing is wrong. And I think, I don't know if this perfectly applies here, but this idea that we see in Romans chapter six, verse one, that talks about, um, are we to, Paul says, are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? Of course not. Just because God is gracious and loving does not mean that we continue in inappropriate behavior relying on his grace. We are called to love God, to follow him, to be with him and to do what is right and not say, I can do wrong, murder my baby, and you're going to have grace, God. You're going to protect my baby. No. And so I think clearly uh, murder is wrong. And two, we do not continue sinning so that grace may abound. We do what is right. Now, there is one caller here in the green room. So thanks for joining. I'll get to you right after this question. Number three, 
by this logic, we should possibly start killing all Christians once they convert. <laughs> that the moment someone commits their life to Christ, then you kill them to guarantee that they're in heaven so that they can't backslide. They, they can't go back. Now, I believe you can't lose your salvation after, but hey, for those who do believe that your salvation can be lost, well, does that mean we should start killing people afterwards? And the answer is, well, clearly not. Now, number four that kind of goes along with this is it's not then just converts to Christianity. It's not just abortion, but back to what we talked about with the other abortion question. Now we're talking about trotting out the toddler. We're talking about toddlers. I believe that a one-year-old six-month-old, let's just go with one-week-old. I believe that a one-week-old baby, I believe if that one-week-old baby dies, that baby will go to heaven. So parents start killing their one-week-old babies to guarantee that they go to heaven? Of course not. It's wrong. Now notice, just like with the previous question, this is even a, I think, a consideration because we don't see abortion as taking the life of an innocent, valuable human being like it is killing a one-year-old. We don't see the one-year-old like we see the unborn. If we see the one-year-old as an innocent, valuable human being, just like the unborn and one-year-old are the same in that way, we would never say, hey, killing my one-week-old baby guarantees salvation? Cool, let's start doing it. No, it is wrong, and we all know it to be wrong. The same is true when it comes to abortion. It's the same thing. You're taking the life of an innocent human being. And just because you might be guaranteeing their salvation is not a good reason for it. Next up on the list, number five, we don't get to choose who goes to heaven or hell. That's not up to us. That's God. I believe that there's an aspect to this that tries to almost put that in our hands where we are start to guarantee salvation when the guarantee is not up to us. It is the guarantee is in Christ Jesus and him confirming our salvation by saving us and redeeming us. It's God that saves. And I think that when we start killing people, trying to determine where we're going to send people, that puts something in our hands that's not meant to be in our hands. So no, you should not start aborting your babies because that decision is not up to you. We need to trust in God's sovereignty and God's goodness that we raise these children and that God will do what is right. That is God's justice. God's justice. Some people will get justice. Some people get mercy, but God is never unjust, unfair. And so we need to trust in God's goodness and his sovereignty with our kids rather than trying to guarantee salvation by doing something wrong ourselves. Some people might want to try to argue this because, again, you're keeping them from doing harm. I once addressed a group of students on the topic of abortion, and one person tried to justify abortion by saying it could stop a future crime. That baby could grow up to be a criminal, and that by aborting, it's going to stop that future crime. Look, for a lot of crimes, we don't even kill criminals. Let's say that baby is guaranteed to grow up to become a bank robber. We don't even put bank robbers to death. It is wrong to abort an innocent human being who has not even committed a crime yet. It's wrong. Lastly, my final thought on why you should not abort your baby, and it's this. Life is beautiful. God is the author of life, and life is good. Which is why murder is bad, as it takes away the life that God is giving. Life is good. 
It is good to live. It is good to experience relationship, to experience the love of God, to experience the love of parents and friends. These are good things. Life is not just about getting into heaven, but life is about experiencing the goodness of God, the goodness of relationship, and then enjoying him forever. And so by trying to guarantee salvation, by aborting your children, is stripping them up the experiences and the goodness of life that God has created. Yes, it's difficult, but scripture is clear that our suffering produces character and character produces, you know, perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. There's, there's a beauty in it. When we suffer, right? This is part of the soul-making defense of the problem of evil. When we suffer, we can more greatly realize the suffering that Jesus Christ went through for us on the cross. When we have to forgive, we more deeply understand the forgiveness of God. When we understand the the chaos and we experience the chaos of this world, it helps us better understand the peace of God, the love of God when we experience hate, the goodness of God when we experience bad. These things, I believe, grow our ability to understand and truly enjoy God forever. And you're stripping someone of this. And so I think that this is wrong. Even though a baby who dies goes to heaven, I think there are many reasons to say, no, it is absolutely wrong to to kill your baby just to try to guarantee heaven. Alrighty. Well, let's go to the first caller here. Let me remember how to add you. Are you there, Ben? Hello. Hello. All right. I can hear you. I hope everyone else can. It shows that your volume is coming through. Uh, Ben, thanks for wanting to call in and have a little conversation. I appreciate it. What would you like to talk about? Yeah. um, Just a kind of, I did have a question, but then kind of while you're talking, there was one thing I did that that you talked about, I wanted to point out on. Um, You said the the quick little answer why you said um, you can't just kill, abort your baby so they can go to heaven or you know, kill a child before they, um, we kind of have that awareness so that they can go to heaven. I feel that that kind of defeats the purpose of what we're meant to be. Um, I felt I kind of reading Genesis chapter one, like we fell from dominion on earth and God placed us here to have, to have dominion and expand his kingdom. And I feel that us trying to get to heaven and the goal of us just just trying to suffer and get to heaven kind of i feel that like i don't want to say medieval times um christianity just kind of had like they're like it's okay just suffer now we're going to get to heaven the whole point of god bringing us on earth is to, to spread his influence on earth so it kind of defeats the purpose so that was just one thing i wanted to point out but no and i and yeah. I, I yeah so thank you for pointing that out i think that is a great point is again th- this also kind of goes back to sometimes the christians uh, approach to cultural engagement is that some Christians have this like, nope, I don't want anything to do with this life. It's all about heaven. It's all focusing on heaven. And I'm just going to remove myself from this world and just focus on eternity. Uh, That's not a good biblical approach, right? This idea of simply just removing us from uh, how the world functions just so that we can um, get to heaven. Right, God has called us to be agents of change here. God has called us to have dominion here, as you pointed out. God has called us to be his ambassadors here. God has called us to be fruitful and multiply, not simply just to create more babies for heaven, but to multiply this earth, to fill it, subdue it, to rule over it, and then to be his agents of change. And so I think I just want to say thank you and kind of add on of for, for pointing that out as well. Of it, it, 
it strips away the purpose that God has created us that we clearly see in Genesis chapter one. So thank you so much for that comment. Um, what was your question? Yes. And kind of segueing into my question. Um, my question is you kind of earlier stated, like, like it kind of brought me up to my dad, my dad, when he was growing up, he kind of grew up in an Orthodox household. And right when he turned, like when he was eight years old, when he started reading the Bible and, and in the Orthodox belief, I think, I believe it, they believe it's when you're seven is when you're seven years old is when, yep. Like after seven, you don't get to go to heaven. You know, and my dad was like, ah, oh, shoot, I missed my chance. And I, and I kind of always wondered, like, it's not an age. I don't, I never believed it was an age thing. My dad kind of fell away from that belief. And you kind of, you didn't say an age, you kind of said a, a state of awareness, but isn't that kind of like a gray line? Like, what is this specific state of awareness that, you know, is where you're able to, you know, say that you can go to you either go to heaven or hell, that you have free will kind of. Right. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, the reason I put a state of awareness is because the Bible is not clear. There isn't this clear line of at age seven, you now um can go to heaven or you now are accountable for your actions. Um, and I do believe that it is different for each individual. Um, you know, as you know, uh, uh, there, I think that I have some, you know, uh, for guys, you know, that could be, you know, 15, 18, 25 years old for guys and girls much sooner. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but anyways, um, there are some kids who, um, who recognize the moral awareness, I believe in a much earlier age. And sometimes it takes a little bit longer. The reason I also put a state of awareness is because my personal belief is that there are certain um, uh, mental um, uh, mental issues that can keep someone from being morally accountable, that they can never develop the ability to know right and wrong. Uh, and so if someone has a mental handicap that is at the ability that it really strips them or is at the level that it strips them from having that knowledge, I believe that God has mercy on those people as well. Um, and so that's why I would never say, um, at age five. Um, and so how I, and I'm careful because that's why I, I don't draw this line because I can't draw a specific line, but I think there are certain things that we can look at. And that is, um, if you have to go back to my reasoning for it in revelation, it talks about right, that we be judged according to the deeds that you have done. And so where I like to at least kind of draw a, a, a rough line in my mind is, are you doing things? knowing that they are wrong, then you are accountable. If you do not have the ability to know right from wrong, then you're not doing things with those wrong intentions or knowing that they are wrong. And so I think that there are certain children who <clears throat> are two years old and you can see it. They know, they've already learned at two, this is wrong and they still do it, right? And I can only think of, I don't have my own kids, but I can only think of a story my brother once told me is he treated his son very differently until there was an age, like his son being a kid, it's, there's a lot of stuff, you know, there's a lot of disobedience and you're trying to teach obedience and you're trying to teach these things, but he doesn't really know better. It's just this kind of selfish human nature kind of that's coming out. But he says that there is that age where his son did something and he said, you don't do that. And his son, he could almost say like, it's almost like if I remember right, there's like this processing and then his son did it anyways. And it was at that time that he had a stricter punishment. I think spankings came out for the first time. There was a lot more deeper punishment rather than before it was maybe a five minute timeout or one minute timeout because for a one-year-old, a minute timeout is huge. And so there's this kind of awareness. Like, I know that you did that knowing it was wrong. You now have the knowledge of right and wrong and you knowingly chose wrong. 
And I believe that that raises a moral accountability than someone who does not have that knowledge. And so, um, I, you know, I can go on the safe side and say one week old babies don't have a moral awareness of right and wrong. They're not knowingly doing wrong. If a one year old baby is sitting there in the mom's arms and for whatever reason moves the arm and slaps the mother, your baby did not do that on purpose. And then I believe there's another clear line of like teenagers and, and 10 year olds. And I think eight year olds, they know that what they're doing is wrong when they tell a lie to their parent and they do it anyways. Yes, there is a gray area. Um, but to me, I don't think that necessarily takes away from the argument of that I believe that Scripture teaches a moral accountability based on uh, what we do and the knowledge of what we do and what God has revealed to us. Does that make sense? Or does that kind of help? Yeah, that helps. Um, I just wanted to ask one quick distinction. So you believe it's not it's not a doctrine like once we like once we've heard the word of Christ, it's when we are able to understand natural law um, at a certain age. And that's why, because I was thinking, okay, what happened if it's 45? What happened if it's 50? Because you can live your whole life knowing what good is good and bad is bad, but you don't know why you should follow good and why you shouldn't follow bad. So even though there's this moral accountability that you reach when you're five, six, it's like, okay, I know I shouldn't do this bad thing, but there aren't that many consequences. There is a risk, but I'm going to take the chance. But there's an objective reason why and there's a kingdom that we're supposed to follow if they don't know those things then what's the point of them having the moral law in their hearts and them being old enough you know and being mature enough to understand it if they don't understand the purpose of it if that makes sense yeah no absolutely and that's where i i would agree with you on that point of that it is not just understanding why it came or the purpose of where it is or the why behind the question it's not just the why um but as you kind of pointed out with natural law and having the law written on their hearts, Romans chapter two talks about this. We're in verse, um, you know, 15, uh, actually in verse 14, I can pull up here really quick where it says, um, is that going to bring up? There we go. Verse 14, for when the Gentiles who have the law by nature do what the law requires, that they are the law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I don't have an age, and that's why I don't say uh, the age of accountability. But I believe that there is a moral awareness where there becomes the point where we have a conscience where we have the where we are able to understand the moral law that God has written on our hearts where our conscience will either accuse us hey what you did is wrong you shouldn't have been doing that or it's going to be wrong you better not or excuse it hey it's okay it's not a big deal go for it no problem and at that point and I do believe it happens very young like I said I think a 2 2 and a half year old probably has that moral awareness maybe it's different for different people um but where revelation talks about that we are judged it talks about the book of life and those names that are written in the book of life and those that are not. And it says those will be judged according to the deeds that they have done. And so um, a one week old baby that has not knowingly done these wrong deeds that does not have the ability to understand and be aware of the moral law written on their hearts that don't, does not have this conscience excusing and accusing their behavior. Uh, I believe that God shows mercy and grace for them. Now, this does not take away from original sin. This does not mean that they're not sinful, that they're somehow born perfect. Uh, it's not that. I just believe that the grace and mercy of God covers the original sin 
for those who do not have this awareness to recognize the moral law. So you're right uh, in saying it's not just understanding the why. It's not only once the gospel has been presented to you, uh, God has written the moral law on all of our hearts so that we are without excuse. And that's what Romans chapter one talks about, um, right? Uh, I forget exactly where it is in Romans chapter one, but talking about the, I can't find it here really quick, but anyways, but uh, talking about the, the glory of God revealed in creation that we can see as invisible attributes uh, so that we are without excuse. And so I, I do believe that the moral law uh, and natural law plays into that as well. Is that, um, so I appreciate you making that comment. Any other kind of thoughts that you had on that, Ben? I think I have, there's, I've always think about this and I have a lot more thoughts, but for now, I feel that you adequately answered a lot of, a lot of questions I had right now. Thank you. <laughs> it's adequate. Um, well, there you go. Mr. Polly, that's a former student of mine, as you guys can tell. Um, I appreciate it, uh, Ben. Thank you so much. Have an awesome rest of your day. Uh, if anyone else wants to call in, again, that number is there below, 714-989-6927. See, it's not too bad. Former student can do it. You can do it as well. Uh, if you also have questions, you can comment those in in the live chat as well. Uh, I have one more question that came in ahead of time that I was about to get to. And um, here it is. So if you have questions... I will address those after this one. But next question that came in ahead of time, does starlight prove that the universe is old? Um, as I mentioned, um, I am a progressive creationist. I do believe that our universe is old. I do not hold to young earth creationism. Starlight is one of the reasons why um, I hold to this perspective. It's not simply just uh, fossil records or stones, um, uh, you know, uh, the age of rocks and sediment and that sort of thing. Um, there are many reasons why I think, uh, or many reasons I think that point to an old universe. And I do believe it is absolutely 100% compatible and fits well with the overall picture of scripture. And so, as I mentioned, starlight, I do believe is one of these evidences that has convinced me that the earth is old. Um, now I <clears throat> went back and I obviously want to see like, oh, okay, if, 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 scientific research has some pretty good observational data showing that these light is actually old, uh, then how would a young earth creationist respond? And so a, a common, a popular young earth creationist website, Ken Ham answers in Genesis. And so I read some articles that he presented as to why starlight doesn't prove an ancient universe. Now, what I found interesting in his articles was that he admitted uh, two things I was actually surprised about. One is that this is based on good observational science. Uh, that astronomers are actually doing good research. This is not um, historical science. This is not going back and trying to come and create, uh, create uh, as he would maybe talk about, like with evolution, of create a story about things in the past that we're not sure about. But this is observational science where we are actually observing and we can test and repeat and, and go through the process and confirm data that we've done before. And so I was happy to see that he admitted that. However, at the same time, obviously, he would disagree and say, no, this galaxy that is a billion light years away, it's not actually a billion light years away, meaning the light took a billion years to travel to us, right? So maybe if I take a step back, for those who are not aware of this conversation, if something is said to be a million light years away, it means that it took the light a million years to get to Earth. And so if you believe that the Earth is only 6,000 years old, then obviously that thing cannot be a million years away. So there has to be some sort of um, 
some sort of issue there, some sort of, of um, uh, uh, wrongness about the data or how far it is away or whatever it may be. And so that's kind of how the argument is made. Why is this an issue? Okay, so Ken Ham admits this is observational science. I thought that was very interesting. Now, one common response to this idea is that maybe God created light in transit. So that galaxy that our scientists are seeing is a million light years away is not actually a million light years away. God created that light coming in transit. And so it has the appearance of age. It's not actually old. It's not really a million years old. Now, what I also found, and this is the second thing I found fascinating. What I also found fascinating is that Ken Ham admitted the huge problem with this type of argument, the same problem I would have. Here's the point. God created Adam to appear old with the appearance of age, but he wasn't actually old. Now, what would happen if God created Adam with memories of a childhood he never had and scars from an accident that never took place and clogging in his arteries from food that he never ate? Right? If Adam had actual memories and scars and wrinkles and clogged arteries and things that show actual age, but he didn't actually have age, he's only a day old, that would be very deceptive. Then we wouldn't know what kind of world God created us to be in because we can't trust our senses and we can't trust our memories and our thoughts and our experiences. And God would be kind of tricking us and deceiving us in a sense. And the same is true with the starlight. If the starlight is only, if it's created in transit with the appearance of age, well, the starlight is telling us a record of past events. So when we see the light of a galaxy a million light years away, it's telling us what happened in that galaxy a million years ago. When a star goes supernova and we see that, you know, 10 billion light years away, it's saying 10 billion years ago, that star went supernova. And so it's telling us a record of past events. And what I found that was very interesting is Ken Ham responded. And I would say, look, if that's true, if God created this in transit, God is giving us a record of past events in our universe that never took place, just like God gave Adam memories that never happened. That would be deceptive. If that's the case, how can we trust our observational science? How do we know if what we're observing is actually real or somehow built into God by God into our system? Rather than realizing Adam was created with the appearance of age, but not actually aged. Right? I've also heard this argument applied to the wine that Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. It tasted like old wine, but the people knew Jesus used water. It had the taste of aged wine, but it wasn't actually aged wine. So I think if we use the argument that God created the light in transit, then this produces a very deceptive God. Then how do we trust what we see in our universe rather than believing that God gave us eyes and intellectual capabilities to do science, to understand his creation because the heavens declare the glory of God, that the, his creation shows his divine attributes, his power. And Ken Ham, I was surprised, agreed to this. And he says, if this is true, Right? Or if we use the argument, God created light on its way to earth, like Adam created with the appearance of age, this means these events never happened if the earth is young. And he says, because of this, most agree this is not the best way to respond. I thought that was very interesting. This is a very common response I hear from young earth creationists. Now, um, what then is often presented is that, well, maybe the speed of light has changed, right? That you get into different aspects and maybe the speed of light went faster in the past than it is today because, again, our observational science today is based on, it looks like I'm about to start buffering, so if I cut out, by everybody. <laughs> but our observational science is today is based on what we know the speed of light to be today and then 
uh, expecting or um, or assuming that the speed of light has not changed, and therefore we can predict what it was like 10 billion light years ago to know that's 10 billion light years away. I think there's good reason to believe that the speed of light has not changed. It is connected to too many other constants in the universe to where if the speed of light has changed, it would create more issues. So what is happening here, I believe, is that there's good reason to believe the speed of light has not changed, that God did not create it in transit, and that what we are observing using the intelligence and eyes and faculties and resources that God has given us is understanding God in his creation because he is revealing to us himself in his creation. And so I do believe that starlight is a good reason to believe that the earth is old. I know I've not covered every single objection to this, but I've addressed some of, I think, the more popular ones to believe that it is a good reason to believe it's old. Question came in here in the live chat and it said, um, what about an old universe young life? Um, that's a possibility. The question though is, is that what we see in the evidence? Um, and I don't think that's true either. I, I don't think in this, uh, so this is often called like the gap theory that uh, Genesis chapter one, God creates the heavens and the earth, that's old. And then 6,000 years ago, um, then the, the verse starts, day one, God creates light. Um, I don't think that it's not as a popular theory because there's nothing biblically to suggest that there is this massive gap between verse one and verse two, uh, or the beginning of creation and the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so I think biblically, there is not necessarily a justification for it. And so I think that what the gap theory has tried to do of saying, maybe the universe is old, uh, but then life is really want, young. And I'll go to Genesis one here really quick. Verse three, sorry, yeah, verse three, is it's trying to justify what we see as an old universe and evidence that the universe and the earth is old but then still trying to stick to the biblical reason for there being young life, young humans. Um, I think there's a good scientific reason to believe too, that human beings are older than 6,000 years, uh, that animals are older, right? Because again, we can maybe accept starlight proves an old universe, um, but at the same time, then we say, okay, but then everything else is young. Well, remember what else was created? Right, the land and the land was created in the in the Genesis creation account. The animals were created day six, humans on day six, and so that would mean that all of our scientific data for the age of plants and animals and humans is also inaccurate. So I don't think it's just an old universe, young age, but I think we have good reason to believe that humans, animals, and others are actually older as well. And so what we then have to do is say, not scripture is wrong. This is really bothers me when it's saying, well, now you just throw out scripture. No. And it's not saying that science is somehow better than the knowledge that we receive in scripture. It's not. This is a false dilemma. What I'm saying is that there is God's revealed character in nature, God's creation nature, and there's God's revealed scripture, his special revelation, his general revelation. These are both the true revelations of God. Our understanding of scripture is our theology and our understanding of nature is our science. And if our science and our theology do not fit, and if our, then we know that one of them is wrong. I'm either interpreting scripture incorrectly or I'm interpreting nature incorrectly.
What I'm not, what, what I think the false dilemma, the false comparison is often that says, well, if science says something, you're saying the Bible is wrong, scripture is wrong. No, I'm saying our interpretation of scripture is wrong. Right? In the same way that people read the Bible, believe that the earth was the center of the solar system, right? The earth sits still on its foundations. It is not moved and believed in a geocentric view of our solar system. And so science comes along and says, no, the sun is the center. We go around the sun and we realize not that the Bible is wrong, but that our interpretation of scripture is wrong, that it's speaking of a phenomenological language, a language of observation that we still use today. The sun is rising, the sun sets, but it doesn't rise and set. It's we're moving. But no one says, ah, what beautiful earth rotation this morning. And so I would kind of press someone that says, no, I only get my knowledge from scripture. If that's true, then why do you believe in heliocentrism? Why do you believe the sun is the center if you only get your knowledge from scripture? I think that, that is a, re a good, solid understanding we have. And we realize not that the Bible is wrong, but our theology was wrong. All right, then there's other times where science is saying that our universe is eternal and scripture is saying, no, it had a beginning. And now in our modern scientific understanding with Big Bang cosmology, okay, our universe did have a beginning, right? We realize our science was incorrect and our theology was wrong. And so what we need to do in this approach is to try to figure out what is the way in which we can take our best understanding of science and our best understanding of theology, and these should mix. Why should they mix well? Because Theology is our understanding of scripture. Our science is our understanding of nature. Both theology and nature are given to us by God, his general special revelation. They're going to agree. And so I think that we, if we have good scientific reason to believe something, then we need to understand our theology. Maybe go back and say, hey, am I reading this right theologically? And if I have good theological reasons to believe something, then we need to go back and say, are we understanding this right scientifically? recognizing I can go bad, I can go wrong in my science, and I can go wrong in my theology. But that in no way goes against God's word. So um, I think in that answer to this question is, what about an old universe, young life? I think that that's trying to blend them in a way that they don't need to be blended. I think instead, I think there's good reason to believe that life is old. I think there's good reason to believe our universe is old and that in no way contradicts the truths of scripture. I know a lot more could be said about that. But we've answered a lot of questions. We had a call. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank you for calling. Remember, 2 p.m. Pacific time every last Friday of the month, which means the next time this is coming up will be on February 26th. So February 26th, you can be checking on the next live Q&A call-in opportunity, as well as February 9th is my interview with Dr. William Lane Craig on the atonement and objections against the death and the saving act of Jesus' death on the cross. That should be a lot of fun moving forward, as well as other conversations coming up. So guys, thank you so much for joining. Please connect. Please share it. If this has been a benefit to you, if this has helped you think about these different issues, I hope that you would share it with the people around you. Thank you for being here. It is a blessing. I just get, I, I enjoy spending this time with you. And so I, I'm, I'm glad I can do it. I'm glad that you enjoy listening and hopefully you're getting something out of this as well. So subscribe, like, listen, share with other people so they can see it as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Hopefully wherever you are in California, it's raining. But hopefully wherever you are, it's some good weather and you can enjoy getting outside a little bit. It's a beautiful thing. So with that, I will see you guys again next week with another live stream and uh, have a blessed rest of your day. Continue to think deeply about God. Jesus, Christianity, because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. I just ask you leave, won't hesitate to follow your love will.